This is the Weekly Bull and Bear by WealthFest, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, Drew Dockin and Tim Prady will have an in-depth conversation on what's happening in the markets. Hello, everybody. Today, it is February 27th. Markets are kind of trading flat today. Obviously, it's been up this year. It's driven largely by tech. Um, Tim, I mean, let's kind of get into it. What's happened so far on this week? Kick us off this Tuesday. Well, you know, it's really uh, all about PCE coming. Is it tomorrow or Thursday? Uh, That's going to be the number that everybody's been waiting on. Uh, the rest of the economic data that has come in has been kind of sideways. We've got a weaker industrial production number, despite the overall trend being stronger uh, on manufacturing, certainly from a global perspective. And some of those ISMs are really starting to flatten out. So so the overall sense, and, and then we got the Atlanta Fed GDP Now tracker, which came in at 3%. And that, you know, that historically had always been revised down that series always came in high and got revised down. They fixed it so that it's been better, actually. So uh, far be it for me to say that we're not going to put up 3% growth, uh, but because that is what the Atlanta Fed uh, nowcast is looking for. Overall, I, I think we are uh, maybe still slowing a little bit, right? The fiscal stimulus is still tremendous, but it's not growing. Uh, what will drive the economy from here is higher income, is higher wages, uh, and higher consumer confidence. Well, consumer confidence is already very high, and actually the latest reading come in a little bit, um, and it'll come down to wages. Are wages going to stay up around 5%? Uh, if that's the case, we're going to continue to have really impressive GDP-type numbers, like 3%. Uh, I'm kind of dubious that we'll be able to stay that strong, um, but it'll come down to housing in the end. It'll come down to the 10-year and uh, we're not going to get those answers real, real soon. Um, we'll see what happens with this PCE report. But the trend on all the inflation reports has been a little firmer, as you know. You say that fiscal stimulus isn't a huge driver right now. Do you think that what's happening on the Hill within the next four days is going to have any effect? I mean, obviously, we do have things like student loan forgiveness. We have things like uh, the CHIPS Act, you know, actual pay force coming out. And a lot of that is in jeopardy if they can't get their act together within the next few days. I know we talk, this this happens every few months. It's increasingly frustrating. But is this in your equation at all in terms of markets? Yeah, and I want to be clear. I'm not saying fiscal stimulus isn't important here. We're running $2 trillion of stimulus. We monetized $8 trillion of debt. You know, it matters. But the question is, is it growing from here? Like, you know, when we talk about GDP, we're talking about growth. Uh, and is it going to grow the amount of fiscal stimulus? And I don't, I don't, I don't think it does. I think you actually have some some lagged effects of some of the fiscal tailing off the the ERC and things like that, the employee retention credits and things like that rolling off, making for dip, more difficult compares. To your governmental question, it does seem the market has become kind of inured to the idea that we're going to have a we could potentially have a government shutdown. Today's Tuesday. The House doesn't get back into session until tomorrow. They're dealing with the uh, Mayorkas uh, uh, issues uh, that are going to go nowhere. But they've got a lot of work to do. The, the, you know, They're going to end up probably having 
to do a, a, a continuing resolution, something that Speaker Johnson has said they don't want to do and that he said, I am not doing. He's not going to get the 12 funding bills done. He has no chance of that. Uh, so he's going to have to probably go to a continuing resolution or we have a shutdown. One potentiality in all of this is that uh, you get some automatic triggers where you get 1% cuts across the board. Uh, that would be impactful. That, that you know, it'll, it'll come with a lag, but that would be impactful to the amount of fiscal support that there is in this economy. And I wouldn't be surprised if that's where we end up. You know, the other day, U.S. Fed Reserve Board member Christopher Waller said that he expects the Fed to cut rates, obviously. They've verbalized that, but that it should not be in a rush to do so. He cited last week's high reading on CPI inflation might be a bump in the road, but it also might be a warning that uh, we still have to make considerable progress um, what are your thoughts on on Fed's uh, Waller's statements there? Well, remember, the importance of Waller is that he's the guy that got markets off to the races and created the huge rally in both equities and uh, in the bond market when he started talking about that, you know, a couple more months of good inflation data and we'll be and we'll be cutting. And that's when we got to that peak expectation of seven cuts since then. Uh, the growth data has been solid, but the inflation data has been disconcerting, right? We've talked a lot about the stronger CPI, the stronger PPI, the stronger uh, prices paid from some of the ISM pieces, uh, import prices, so forth. So uh, so that is an important comment, but Barkin has co had uh, comments recently that we can't be too early. The new Kansas City Fed President, Schmid, or Schmidt, I'm not sure how you say it. He's brand new. There's no T on the end. Uh, he is saying that he's in absolutely no hurry. And not only that, that uh, when they, they they should continue uh, with a QT runoff uh, and really work to more aggressively uh, shrink the size of the Fed's uh, still around $9 trillion balance sheet. So, yeah, the hawkishness from the Fed has been uh, very clear and very consistent. You know, um Right now, inflation has really come off on goods. Um, so, you know, we obviously saw a ton of stimulus monetary and fiscally. We've seen huge geopolitical shocks, Russia, Ukraine, uh, what's going on in the Red Sea, supply lines around COVID, China, you name it. We've seen it all. Goods inflation has come down in many important regards, but where we've seen a lot is service inflation. And at the end of the day, you can't import, you know, a haircut or a car wash or whatever, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and the concern, and that was Barkin's comment. Barkin's comment is, look, we've had 3% goods deflation. It, to the degree that, that overall uh, global demand may be getting a little less bad, um, maybe you're at the end and you're at the end of sort of inventory destocking and things like that. Uh, Barkin's comment is, well, if goods deflation turns into, let's just call it flat, and then we're still left with the, the real pressure on core services, which are driven by the 5% wage growth type numbers I already mentioned, then you really got a problem, 
right? And that's what that, and that was Barkin's comment of we don't need to cut real real soon here because if we lose that disinflationary driver from goods, the deflation from goods, we're going to be just left with this uh, with this um, uh, leisure and hospitality and services piece, which is still super super inflationary. You know, we saw that U.S. home sales missed the mark in January. Um, starts or the sales of new U.S. single houses rose less than expected in January. Um, Jamie Dimon made an array of comments uh, just just the other day in which he was said he was worried about everything, but one worry he didn't have or was less sanguine about, I should say, was that our real estate sector looking like it would in two thousand and eight. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. This has been, this has very much been, there's been fiscal stimulus, but there's been great income gains. We have the the generational wealth transfer that we've talked about, right? First time home buyers are really left out in the cold, but cash buyers seemingly are everywhere. Uh, it is a very different environment where you had credit, a massive credit and a misallocation of credit uh, that drove the, the, the frenzy, the bubble in 2008. I don't think we're going to have anything like that. The risk is that let's say we do get more inflationary readings. We do see some reacceleration. The Fed isn't cutting rates. All of a sudden you see some, some, some weakness in some of these auctions that are coming and notes and bonds in the second quarter. And the 10 year goes back to five, right? And you end up with mortgage rates at seven and a half and eight. You are going to see continued weakness in the new home market. You're going to see this stasis that we have in the existing home market, the larger existing home market, which there is some real optimism uh, that that housing turnover, which will have to come from the existing home market, will improve. Look at Home Depot and Lowe's. Lowe's just repeated reported today. Home Depot was yesterday. Home Depot was up big on a negative three percent comp. Lowe's is up big on negative forward guidance. They're going to have negative top line not just less pricing, they're going to have negative top line altogether as what they're guiding to. So, and yet that stock is up today. So there's this real optimism that the 10 year is going to behave and we're going to have better existing home turnover. I'm not sure that's right. What I've said a lot is that if we end up in recession and that's not my baseline call, but the way we would end up in recession, in my opinion, is if you get these greater inflationary pressures that take the 10 year, uh, up to call it, you know, call it 5%. The new home market, new home construction really rolls. We have a ton of completions in the new home market. You have inventory in the new home market up over eight months. Uh, and then you start to really lose jobs in the construction industry and all of the, all of the uh, adjacent industries to housing construction, which are many. Uh, that is where you would see something similar to 08 and that and I only mean it from the sense that so much of the job losses that we saw in 08 were all about housing. And I think you would start to see some negative non-farm payrolls, some meaningful increases in layoffs if you really saw a much weaker uh, uh, new home market and that that kind of just sideways, very little getting done in the existing home market. One way we have seen layoffs right now is been um, pretty focused on the tech sector. I mean, the jobs market is still kind of humming along. You know, we added 253,000 in January, but it seems like for tech work, that is starting to um, really change 
and obviously money's gotten more expensive, um, which is a big problem when you're in a perpetual growth model. So yeah. we say that's always the first shoe to fall. Um, are we kind of seeing that happen right now? You know, I don't know that the tech layoffs are a great indicator of uh, of the more general economy. Remember, last year we got a big head fake with big tech layoffs, and and everybody expected is that going to mean uh, that we have more job weakness? You know, we've had this really weak temp job market for several quarters now, and it hasn't meant. Uh, uh, that we're gonna that we're gonna see layoffs. Historically, it did. It's another one of those things that the economist who looked at previous cycles said, "Well, when this happens, we got a problem." Well, it hasn't transpired that way. Just like I was talking about this kind of sideways dormancy in housing, it's similar in employment. Right? Hiring may not be very strong, but firings are pretty low too. Now, one interesting thing about the tech layoffs in California is the suspicion that if you're making a few hundred thousand dollars a year, you're not going to bother in your, you, and you expect that in an exuberant economy, you're going to find another job, uh, even if, you know, the VC-backed firm that you just got laid off from had way over hired and now realizes that they're burning too much money and the VC market ain't what it was, uh, and they actually got to try to operate their business for so, uh, at least some path to cash flow as opposed to just, you know, living on a revenue multiple, uh, you probably aren't uh, going to, uh, you know, subscribe for unemployment benefits. So there's a thinking that the uh, initial claims numbers are lower than they otherwise would be because of the cohort of people in finance and technology or higher income and they don't bother with trying to get the unemployment benefits because they don't make that much of a difference and they've got some optimism that they're going to be uh, gainfully employed uh, sometime soon anyway. But I don't think that the tech layoffs are telling us that layoffs are going to pick up for the rest of the economy. Again, if we get big layoffs in the economy, I think it's going to come from the housing sector and it'll come from a housing sector that is suffering from rates moving higher. Yeah, I mean, it could very well be that, I mean, often, you know, when people are trying to tighten their belts, a lot of the first things to go is, um, you know, ad revenue and then also different stimulative um, elements of, you know, tech onboarding, you know, whether it's a, a DocuSign or, or whatever, yeah. anything that might make life a little bit easier, that becomes the first thing, um, you know, I think companies reassess. Yeah, but you, you know you haven't really seen that yet. Yeah. You haven't seen this big fall off in capex. You look at Google and Facebook and the report and 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 the strength of their ad spending uh, is still seeing. You know the upfront market, the scatter market they call it in advertising. My understanding is still pretty strong. So those indicators of the economy, uh, they're not showing that we're about to roll over. You know, we've talked a lot about antitrust, and this is, uh, you know, just I guess one kind of the part of things I wouldn't mind talking about is we saw a grocer merge blocked, uh, and we saw a more aggressive FTC. You know, obviously goods inflation has come down, but at the same time that food is one of the items that Americans are spending some of the most money they have on in, in a few decades. And I think consolidation of grocers will be one of many, many things that, you know, continues to drive food inflation. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. And, it, it, you know, it's like we have this new we have Lena Khan and she is somebody who is trying to prevent 
more monopolies, right? I mean, we have these tech-driven virtual monopolies, right? Amazon Prime, the Amazon iPhone, NVIDIA in the, in the GPU space, Microsoft uh, Office, right? These are kind of virtual monopolies and these companies, Google and search. I mean, these companies have consolidated and that's not good for long-term productivity, right? I mean, it's kind of econ 101 that you want industries to be more competitive in order to drive down pricing, in order to have a, a competitive uh, dynamic that encourages investment that is going to drive productivity. Companies dominating industries uh, easily makes for companies that don't spend on generating greater levels of productivity. Uh, so I think it's important, uh, but it has the feel to me of trying to get the horses back in the barn. Like, I think it's good that we have a more assertive, more muscular FTC. I do think more uh, M&A should be blocked by the federal government, but in a sense, I kind of feel like it's too late when you look at the monopolies that have occurred uh, within tech and commerce. I mean, the Amazon Whole Foods was a major one that happened a few years ago that had everyone scratching their heads. Um, right. I mean, I don't know what do we call that vertical or horizontal. In that context, I wouldn't want to be where they are on the yeah. supply chain. But, uh, you know, it's the guys who are sending me drones don't also have to own the grocery store. Uh, and, and so one, it's, it's obviously it's going to be inflationary for the consumer. But I mentioned the point that often if you look at the sum of the parts, a lot of these companies could be more productive and valuable uh, on any exchange in of themselves than, you know, as, as one behemoth. So I think for the shareholder, it's, it's kind of less beneficial at some point as well. But I would think you're right. Um, you know, anything else, Tim? Um, we might have overlooked this week. You know, I just, you know, we talked a little bit about the potential of a government shutdown. I think that is a very real risk. There is nothing getting done. I mean, just imagine sitting in a room with Mike Johnson and Chuck Schumer and thinking those two are going to come to some kind of a compromise. No. Uh, neither one have any real ability to hold uh, their different constituencies together. Johnson certainly doesn't have an ability to have a coherent uh, constituency on, on the right in the House. I, I think the most interesting thing I read this week was there was a really interesting study uh, from Harvard in the Boston Consulting Group. Uh, where they took, I think it was 180 consultants, and they all uh, were given tasks. And some were given tasks, that, and they were AI-enabled, and some were not AI-enabled. And on some of the tasks, it was kind of the intuitive outcome where the AI-enabled people came to the right result, they got there more quickly, uh, it was more productive, etc. But in other tasks, they tended to get the wrong result, uh, and they ended up putting up, and when they did get more correct results, they were fairly cookie cutter, right? There was a lack of creativity in that. So the, the one of the kind of the takeaways from those who wrote the study is that what is going to be important is for people to understand how to use AI and when not to use AI. There are applications where it will drive productivity, but there are also other applications where it will drive very cookie-cutter results, sometimes hallucinations and wrong answers, uh, and it will also um, uh, pr produce maybe less creativity. Uh, 
so it really is a, an interesting microcosm of what I think you can co- you will come to see with AI. There will be investments in AI that will beget productivity. There will be other uh, uh, investments in AI that will beget malinvestment. Uh, and it, what I think is important for at least young people to take away from that study is that you need to understand how to use AI tools and when to use them, when not to use them, and how to sanity check them. You know, it's it's funny you mentioned that I downloaded AI music uh, last week, and I did that because I wanted to hear Butters from South Park, you know, sing Wind Beneath My Wings, and it was good fun. But, you know, that's not the ground changing stuff that's going to, you know, revolutionize our world and cure cancer and all the rest of it. But well, it's creative. Yeah, yeah, definitely is it's made for some laughs. Definitely. But yeah. All right. Sounds good, Tim. Um, thanks for your time today. And for our listeners and subscribers, thanks as well. We're out. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the host and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WellFest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WellFest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WellFest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to the accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content. WellFest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked to any of the contents. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Investment and investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal.